Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. Here's a lecture topic that's sure to arrest the attention of lots of us. Eros, intimacy, and the mind of God. Hang on, though. Isn't God a cosmic sex killjoy? What about the picture of Christian people being anti-sex, boring, bigoted, and puritanical? Well, certainly not my next guest. Patricia Wirakoon is a medical doctor turned sexologist and writer. And at one of the Aussie Christian calendar's most significant events of the year, the 2012 Smith Lecture, she's asking the question, what has God got to do with desire? Her answer? Lots. This will be an interesting conversation and an absorbing one. Patricia Wirakoon, welcome to Open House. Thank you. It's really great to be with you. Wonderful to meet you. There is this image both of God and the Christian person being somewhat killjoys when it comes to sex, though, isn't it? Oh, definitely. Yeah. It's I, it's something that I've just lived with for my 30 years as a sexologist. And why do you think that is? Because people just uh, think that the Bible must be God saying, just don't do it. What they don't realize is that actually the Bible says, go ahead and do it. Just do it in a holistic and healthy way and you'll have wonderful fun, great sex. You approach this medically as well as clinically and personally. Can I ask you a bit about your personal journey first? both how you came to Christian faith and how you came to this arena in particular? Because it is a bit of an unlikely arena. It's an interesting arena. Yes. I wouldn't give it up for anything. Look, I was born in Sri Lanka, in the tea plantations of Sri Lanka, 65 years ago. My grandfather was converted by a wonderful Welsh missionary who then decided that a Tamil name was quite not right for a Christian. So he was called Roberts. So I grew up as Patricia Roberts. Went to a Methodist missionary school, which is where I really came to know the Lord. And then went to the medical faculty there where in Sri Lanka. Uh, graduated from medical faculty, postgraduate study in Hawaii, which is where I really came into sex, which is interesting because I was already four years married yes. with a two-year-old son. You're already into sex. Why sex then? Why not other academic endeavours? Oh, I was one of the few females on the faculty, so I was asked to teach sex and reproduction. But I think it's really when I went to Hawaii and I worked with a sexologist and I used to work in the clinics with him, the sexual health clinics, and I realised at that time that sex was actually so beautiful. You know, our bodies are just created for wonderful sex and our sexual responses are just so beautifully matched as male and female. So there was the beauty and the purity in some ways. But then on the other side, there was this power and hunger of sex that you saw the, the side that was ugly and the side that people just longed to have good sex but looked in all the wrong places and as a Christian I really had to look at that and think how does this fit in with what God has been telling us and God's created and spoken pattern for good sex. Which I want to get to but first your clinical work, your medical work, you've looked into the brain chemistry and you, you find some really interesting things there. You say there are three stages of this process. 
of sex through our lives. Take us through those. Yeah, the, uh, this is fairly recent work coming from the laboratories of uh, Professor Helen Fisher and her group. And they've worked with uh, magnetic resonance imaging. And now we can like really look into the brain and you can see which bits light up when things happen. And what we're finding is that there's a three stage, a sort of consequential stages Firstly, there's sexual desire. Sexual desire is like an appetite. It's that I want sex feeling. It starts when you're in your early teens. And then it's this bubbling cauldron of desire of wanting sex. It's testosterone driven, but it's really a neurochemical soup in your brain. And then this all this energy, when you see that one person you fall in love with, that is a love or limerence phase. So you see all that energy then focuses on one person. And guess what? It's chemistry. It's chemistry in the brain and there's chemicals like what we call dopamine and endorphins, you know, the euphoria, the excitement, that sort of person takes over and just inhabits your brain. And it's like a little obsessive behavior. And then when you are with one person and you have sex with that person, then you move into an attachment phase, which is driven by other chemicals, which we call the cuddle hormones. So there's three distinct phases. Can I ask you a bit about timing of each of those mm -hmm. phases? How long will the desire typically last for before it turns to love? And then how long does the love thing intoxicate us, the limerence? Well, the thing is, desire actually is through life. Because desire is just an appetite that says, I want sex. So you can actually be in love with someone and feel that intoxication of dopamine, but then desire someone else because there's mechanisms, different mechanisms that are driving it. So desire is lifelong from teens. Falling in love, that sort of crazy hot stage of love fortunately doesn't last for more than about 12 to 18 months i'm married 38 years if i start palpitating every time i see my husband i won't be alive right now so fortunately yes. only last then but what the way it is meant is that you find that person and then you have sex and be married with that person then you stay with that person and then you move into that cuddle phase of the oxytocin and vasopressin that lasts a lifetime when you said that attachment comes out of that kind of sexual encounter where does casual sex fit into that or not it doesn't but the point is that when you have sex with someone you bond even a little bit, you'll bond unless you're zonked out of your brain. You know, you're under alcohol and you just don't know what you're doing. If you have a conscious connection with the person, you think you are in love and you have sex, you form a mini bond. This is what I tell teenagers. I say, you know, you have sex with someone, you bond. It's like having a little super glue attachment. Then when you move on, you tear yourself apart. You leave a bit of yourself, a bit of super glue with that person. This is why breaking up is so painful. This is why when, you know, you have sex with someone, it's so much harder when you break up, then you go to someone else and you have sex, you leave a bit of yourself. But a young person would be saying, now that feels great. 
spreading the joy. Every time you have sex, of course it feels great because that's the way we are created. We are created to enjoy that experience because we are, every time you have, especially if you have an orgasm, it is that chemical spray of oxytocin and endorphins that make you just feel wonderful. And that's, it was meant to be wonderful because, you know, just look at it like this, you know, just imagine, I mean, as a Christian, I had to, I thought about this and I thought, you know, when God said, go out and procreate and fill the world, what if he made it the most boring thing in the world to do that? I mean, if it was like doing your tax return or something <laughs> a good point. or taking the garbage out, yes. who'd do it? <laughs> we won't have a population explosion. We won't have a population. Yes. So when you know, when we are created to procreate, isn't it a wonderful thing that God actually made it recreational to procreate? But you would say, as a Christian person, he makes it for fidelity. Of course, because the point is the more you are with the person and the more sex you have, the more you bond. And the point is, you know, the Bible says naked and no shame. And I tell young people, young people, sometimes I teach, I talk to teenagers and they ask me, so what's the big deal about sex? And I explain to them, you know, actually have, what's having sexual intercourse is like because it is the most intimate and trusting thing you will ever do with another human being. I mean, it is just that act of absolute intimacy. And at that point, you form a bond, a one flesh bond. And that is meant to remain and build together as one man, one woman for life. Can I ask you about one very powerful modern dynamic in this equation, and mm -hmm. that is pornography. It's such oh. a big, deep, and far-reaching element of our society. Where do you want me to start? Yes. Pornography. It's now a ninety-eight plus billion dollar industry globally. The average age at which children first view pornography is eleven to thirteen years. It is. I. The research today tells us that almost every young man at some time has viewed porn. I talk to young girls. I do focus groups with young girls who tell me every one of their boyfriends have viewed porn and that their boyfriends want them to behave like porn stars, to look like porn stars. It just changes the brain wiring because you see now we know that special two things. One is for teenagers, the sex part of their brain, what we call the limbic lobe, the deep parts, mature early at puberty and remember puberty age is dropping so early in their teens or even preteens the sex brain starts developing but the control brain which is sort of the front bit doesn't mature till the mid-20s so all that time there's a wiring and rewiring happens happening in the brain and everything from outside Every influence, every role model that feeds into the brain is rewiring the brain. Physically. Physically. Re it's building connections and connections that are kept, are used, are kept. Those that are not used are lost. I mean, I tell teenagers, you know, look, the Bible tells us feed your mind on pure and good things. I mean, and this actually means something. 
when you're young. To add to that, we also know that in adults like you and me, our brains are still neuroplastic, which means that they can be rewired too. So adult brains are rewired by porn to desire porn. And that is why as a therapist, which is also part of my job, and as a therapist, we are seeing couples where porn use has destroyed relationships, Christian relationships. Are you able to rewire their brains again back to a better state? Yes, it takes time. It takes a lot of grace, and I'm using that word very deliberately because it needs forgiveness and it needs repentance and it needs that that ability to stay as a couple and work through it only through grace and repentance and working as a couple to rebuild the images and the wiring. On Open House, we're with Patricia Wirakoon on the topic Eros, Intimacy and the Mind of God. So, Patricia, God's plan, you say, is for good sex. Mm -hmm. How do you come to that conclusion? Oh, the whole Bible is so sex positive. I mean, it's one of the most sex positive or sexiest books I've ever read. And I've read some in my time. The thing is, it starts with sex. I mean, Adam and Eve in the garden. For goodness sake, they were perfect. Adam, like the perfect six pack, you know, couldn't have had anything better. I mean, so well adorned. He probably needed a whole lot of fig leaves. And Eve, I mean, she was just perfect. No boob jobs, no Botox, nothing. Yeah. I mean, just absolutely a cool chick and so you know they were perfect and then you know we look at revelation and we see christ coming back to claim his church i mean what a wedding what a honeymoon what a consummation that's going to be and then we have the sealed section of the song of songs right in the middle and what erotic poetry you know when i talk to my friends i mean being a sexologist a lot of my friends are atheists and homosexuals and when i talk to them and i tell them about the bible and what a lot of erotic sort of imagery there is in like the song of songs and even like god's desire and longing for his people and christ just longing to relate and actually coming down and loving us. I mean, what? how can that not be all about love? So I'm sure you'd be surprised at the image that the Christian person, that God has got in this world of being anti-sex and just so hung up on sex negatively. I mean, the point is even Christians don't understand it. And that is what amazes me that, you know, I talk to Christians, I talk in churches and I, it's still such a revelation to us that God is just so sex positive. I mean, I was with a professor of mine, a very good friend of mine, a professor in America, and this sort of really exemplifies. He told me, he was saying, Patricia, how is this even possible? How can you say that you're a sexologist and a Christian? Because Christians are like, they're trying to close us all down and get rid of us. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I was telling him, I said, you know, Professor X, I said, look, you and I both study sex. And he says, yes. And I, I said, you know what? I have the privilege of having a personal relationship with the creator of sex. And he said, you know, Patricia, when you put it like that, I can almost believe you. Yes. And I think that's it. I mean, it's this personal relationship of knowing that God created us male and female, our genitals to fit so perfectly. I mean, our genitals... 
I mean, it's like an engineering marvel. I've always thought that myself, quite yeah, frankly. Yes. It is amazing. It's an amazing fit. Because I'm an anatomist and physiologist yeah. primarily. And I just cannot get over the beauty of it all. It probably gets down to how you view God, whether you view God as like this cranky old man upstairs waiting to trip you up or a good God who wants good for you, who's on our side. I mean, God wants the best for us. And I mean, being sexual, I mean, like in, in Genesis, I mean, we are created in the image of God. We are created male and female. So we are irrevocably gendered. And then we are created for good sex because procreation, having babies, even in this world of IVF, still is basically about sex. And God, being the wonderful, gracious God, says, you know, have heaps of fun while doing it. But of course, as a fallen people, we mess it up. And that is why we have to go back to the pattern and redeem sex. Because the world, you know, pornography is just one. But you just got to look at the media. We just got to look at the expectations of sex and the desires that we have placed on our teenagers. Because teen sex today... I mean, all the research tells us that, I mean, 10 year, 10 year, 12 students, about 50% have had sexual intercourse. I mean, because young people, many young people, I'm not saying all, but many young people sort of think that if you love, then you sleep together. And that is so sad. We have lost, we have somehow given the wrong messages to our children. We, 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 sort of not given them the message that love is not necessarily about making love, but that non-sexual intimacies and friendships are beautiful things. And what are we role modeling for them as adults, as Christian adults? So you painted that picture of the spunky Adam and the mm -hmm. spunky Eve at the dawn of creation. The cool chick. The reality is, though, those six-packs start to fade, don't they? Oh, definitely. And... That's where attachment comes in. Oh, yes. How do you remain attached? How do you remain vibrant in your sex life despite the onslaught of the years? I just love this because this again takes us back to sort of fairly new research where they looked into the brains of adults who'd been married for some time but said that they were happily married and had reasonably good sex. What they found is that all these attachment bits of oxytocin, vasopressin is going, you know, the cuddle hormones are working, but also the parts of the brain that are involved in love light up, but not in that crazy way. It's a sort of a modulated light up, you know, it's not like flashing strobe lights, but the nice sort of steady light that, you know, like the old eyes can take. So, But not tired and old. Not tired and old, yeah. but, you know, it's, it's still there. So what I tell as a therapist, we tell couples is, yes, you are in this phase of attachment and bonding, but you've got to keep the love going by just doing things that are exciting and something taking back your to your love story. And you know what? You're doing that, especially if your parents will be uh, is really good for your children yes. because today we know that a 
lot of our young people, when we talk to them, they say, we would love to know about our parents' love stories. We want to learn about sex education from our parents. And parents are not sharing their values with their children. So this is also a call to parents, to Christian parents, to talk to their children about their love stories. Because then they'll re vitalize their love and they'll be also teaching their children what good love the values of family and man and woman as husband and wife really is another good reason to stay together oh definitely yeah so doctor may i ask this as we begin to wrap up you mean anything okay you can ask anything 38 years of marriage Mm -hmm. how's the sex life been and this question too how have you been able to set your professional interest aside and for it to be remaining personal and intoxicating. Oh, my, uh, you see, we, we've been 38 years married and we've known each other non-biblically for five years before <laughs> because in Sri Lanka you don't marry when you're still in university. So I think primarily my husband and I, both of us are Christians. We were friends and mates and co- before we even slept together after marriage. So... What's happened is he's always known he was marrying this crazy sexologist type woman. Although I wasn't a sexologist then, only just crazy. But the fact is that my husband has this ability to keep me grounded. I mean, he's so disciplined. He's an engineer. So he's totally disciplined. And he's like... We must read the Bible. We've got to say our prayers. So I would have done the craziest, sexiest things during the day. But when we are together in the evening, it's like (laughs) we have our together time, but we must have our God time. And so he grounds me and brings back that primary identity that firstly, we are man and woman as Christians before Christ. And then all the fun and fluff and sex are added to that. Woohoo. And it's yeah. still going on 38 years later. 38 years going on. <laughs> She's got Bless him if he's listening to this. <laughs> Hope he hasn't fallen asleep by now. She's got this big smile on her face. Okay, last question. <laughs> the key to a good sex life and a good marriage is what? Firstly, keeping your focus on what what really matters in your relationship. Now, if I'm talking to Christian couples, I would say to firstly remember that this is a partnership, that it is not about getting your desires met, but it is about caring enough for the other and wanting to know what is best for the other person. And if as a couple, you're both looking to what's best for the other, then surely that will work out for you. And it's a bit like, you know, the Christ-like love, that Christ cared so much to go to the cross. And I mean, my husband cares so much for me to go to die for me. I'm willing to do anything and obey what he wants me to do. I mean, we're human. But in a tiny way, our marriages do exemplify Christ and the church. And if we can keep that in our mind and show that to our children and show that to the world, the world will look at us and say, I want a piece of what they've got. That's what we want to show the world. Thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and I was totally expecting to as well. Patricia Werrikun, thank you so much indeed for joining us on Open House. Such You're a treat. most welcome. Thank you.
We hope you enjoyed this open house podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.